0: Welcome to the Strange Harbors podcast, a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by
1: Amir Ture and
0: Eric Wong. This week, we are doing something a little different. Instead of discussing a new release or series, we'll be talking about an unignorable, nearly unprecedented current event, namely the WGA and SAC aftra strikes against the AMPTP for better wages and treatment in the face of advancing tech and the advent of streaming. So this seems like kind of a dry subject matter. I actually talked to some of my friends about it. I'm I ask them if they've been following along. They're like, oh, we don't really know what's going on. We don't really follow that stuff. But this is actually like a huge deal, right? And it's likely a turning point for the industry, like the entire entertainment industry, for better or worse. If you watch any movies or TV at all, this is a giant deal. I feel like people don't really realize how big of a deal these two concurrent strikes are.
1: Yeah, first time since, what, like 1960 that both actors and writers are striking at the same time? Yeah. So this doesn't happen every day. So
0: this is the first time since 2007 that the Writers Guild of America, and the first time since, I believe, 2000 that the Screen Actors Guild have organized a strike against the AMPTP. And like you said, Amir, it's the first time since 1960 that both have done so at the same time. Uh, What about you, Derek? Have you been following along? I definitely have.
2: I remember the impacts of the 2007 writer's strike, and that was just the writer's strike, and had really a profound influence, I remember, on television. I mean, it probably had a pretty big impact on films too, but I do remember it having a bigger effect on television. So then to follow along with this one and to hear that it's both going to be the writers and the actors, I was very interested to see, one, how long this is going to go on. And we don't know yet, but the implications of what we're going to see come out of when they do finally sign some kind of contract.
1: I was going to say that your memory lines up with mine. I definitely remember a huge impact on TV, and I don't really remember what it did to movies at that time.
0: Yeah, I primarily remember for TV, too, because I remember, you know, Lost had the shortened seasons, 24 was delayed. This was 2007, so both those huge shows were, like, in the heyday and a lot of shortened seasons and just general delays until they came to an agreement. But now, I mean, I think things are a little different. You know, streaming is huge. Like I said, this has a huge impact on almost all the entertainment we consume. It's been quite revealing, frankly. I think it revealed the cracks in, like, wild corporate malfeasance and greed, especially when it comes to, like, the technology that's been used, you know, in terms of AI and the rush to get everything on a streaming platform, which has really left a lot of, like, contract negotiations and fair pay in the dust. So, to give a little primer, after the contract negotiations fell through in April, the writers' union began their strike. On May 2nd, their primary goals were to increase funding and job security for its writers, expanding the size of writers' rooms, and limiting the use of AI in the writing process. And then the SAG-AFTRA followed with a strike of its own on July 14th. Its demands were being the ratification of a new labor contract, new streaming service residual formulas, and increasing regulation and control of self-tape auditions, which we'll get into later, but that's actually super interesting. I don't know if you guys know anything about like the self-tape stuff. That's actually been like a lightning rod for the Actors Guild strike. And they had like their own stipulations against AI too. But a lot of this has come from like a really unhealthy streaming environment. I think it's just ever since the start of Netflix and their promise to put everything under the sun on streaming, every studio has been rushing to put their own libraries on streaming without negotiating new contracts for writers and actors. And, you know, writers and actors used to be able to make a living off residuals. And now without proper contracts in place for those residuals, they're getting pennies on the dollar for whatever's playing on streaming. And nobody watches cable or network TV anymore. Right. So,
1: so I think there's a couple things going on, right? You don't necessarily even know how much these streaming platforms are making So you can't fairly account for what percent of the profits you should be getting. Exactly. Because they don't even tell you how much money they've made, right? Hand in hand with that is we don't know that these streaming platforms necessarily are making money. It seems like they're all hemorrhaging money, right? All of them.
0: I think it's way worse than we think.
1: Yeah, than we previously been able to prove, right? Mm-hmm. Like some of the ridiculous claims of eight billion people in the world watched. What was that random Netflix thing that Red yeah, Notice? To, yeah, like Red Notice or something. It's like, all right, that's clearly not true.
0: I actually have the exact figure. So it says half of all Netflix subscribers in the entire world watched Red Notice. So they have around two hundred fifty million subscribers. So a hundred twenty-five million people watched Red Notice. Holy shit over like 300 million hours watched or something there's no fucking way there's not a single person i know in real life who's watched that movie the number of views is also calculated like oh if you watch it for three minutes it counts as a view you know what i mean right yeah so the fact that they don't make these numbers public they're definitely astroturfing their own shit like there's no way any of this number crunching is real right so yeah
2: Well, okay. The idea of residuals and like data is like really interesting for this argument, you know, for the writers and the actors. But before we dive into that, because I do really want to talk about it, I think it's really fascinating. I think it's like one of the sticking points to this 2023 strike. But just to jump back in history a little bit, just to remind people like what the 2007 strike was about, right? Uh Uh-huh. A lot of that was like DVD residuals. But then the idea of striking and the idea of unions that were created for writers, like way back in history, were to create resources, right? These funds for residuals like DVDs, like VHS, like reruns, a syndication on TV, right? Uh-huh. A lot of these writers, that's how they make their money. It's not, you know, the upfront fee they get for writing a show, it's every time it gets played on fucking TNT, they get a dollar or whatever, right? Just X amount. But like you said, Jeff, people are not watching cable anymore, right? So, those numbers aren't producing the checks that they are anymore because those same shows, Smallville or whatever that used to be on TNT that used to rerun constantly on TNT no longer does that, right? Now, it's Mm -hmm. been put on things like Netflix or HBO Max or wherever it's landed at the moment. In the 2007 strike, Netflix was not a thing yet. Streaming was not a thing yet. So those residuals weren't written into their contracts. So now when things get played on Netflix or HBO Max or Paramount Plus or whatever the streaming services, they're not seeing any of that money. And that's the really shitty thing about it, is that they're just trying to fight for their livelihood because all these corporations are making money off of streaming
0: while they're not. And yeah. they rightfully should be. And just to like highlight the difference between the checks that they're getting, like some of these writers, they used to be getting like three, 4000 dollars checks for residuals every quarter or every couple months or whatever the contract stipulated. Now, when all their shows are on streaming, they're getting... I don't know, residuals for like $20, $30 every three or four months. It's outrageous. It's all hidden under the smokescreen of like these streaming services hiding their numbers. They don't tell anyone what the actual viewership is. When before, you know, like being paid on reruns or physical media, you always have copies sold. And you know when things are being syndicated, when things are being aired for the first time as a rerun. It's like the tiered residuals where, you know, the first time it gets rerun, you get... A certain percentage and then it gets lower and lower the more it plays on tv and there's like a tangible number that everyone reported you could set your benchmark for your residual check too but now that no one's reporting the streaming numbers astroturfing their viewership data it's all hidden you know they can't make a living anymore
1: yeah you can't hold them accountable for how much they've made if they're not being transparent about those figures. Just to underline what you said again, this is from an article in The Atlantic by Sachi Gonzalez. In our article, she says that the actor Mark Prosh, for example, made more money off residuals from one season of guest appearances on The Office under the old system than he has in five seasons of starring in What We Do in the Shadows under the new system. That's unreal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the numbers are crazy you can see how it becomes, like, not a viable situation for working actors and stuff. You know, you see a lot of rich and famous actors out there supporting their colleagues on the picket line. Well, why are these, like, millionaires complaining? But they're also supporting their colleagues who, like, aren't millionaires and who have to survive off these residuals.
0: Yeah, so the median SAG actor salary is $32,000 a year. Wow. The big Hollywood stars only make up a small portion of the union, when they show up, they're doing it out of solidarity for, you know, the little guy and the actual struggling mm-hmm. actors. And I think the way that the media has been portraying this is very skewed towards anti union because, you know, the big trades like Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, Variety, Variety, they're all owned by AMPTP members, right? So they'll do anything to like paint strikers in a bad light, or misconstruing an actor's words or something. Uh, do you guys remember when Matt Damon came out, and they just cut around his words entirely and made it seem like he didn't support the strike at all, and then they had to like issue a correction? Like, all oh, these trades are anti-union. I mm-hmm. don't
1: remember this. Wait, can you go over the situation? Yeah,
0: so Matt Damon came out and was like, oh, things are gonna be super difficult going forward until we can reach a resolution, and then they cut out the part where he's like, but I stand behind my Union brothers and sisters and stuff. Dude, the guy's like from fucking Boston. You know what I mean? Like, to paint him as like anti union is kind of crazy. And they had to like issue a retraction and be like, oh, we purposefully cut around the context of his words. And it's all this shit like that. It's crazy. So, a lot of the reporting is skewed. So, you gotta like find reputable sources of information when it comes to this. One's not owned by the AMPTP, right? <laughs> Mhm So, yeah, and I
2: think you guys have already kind of started to talk about this really fascinating idea of like statistics because look, even before the writer strike, before the actor strike, there was a lot of hidden statistics when it came to streaming, right, like we have no idea the metrics you know Jeff, you've already kind of uh started to talk about this, like Netflix is top ten, this is the most watched like this many people watched it and, and Every person who ever owned a Netflix has watched this thing, right? And now, I think part of the fight or part of the why I think the streaming services are fighting against this so much is that there now has to be some kind of hard stat. Like, if you're going to pay a writer, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, a certain amount for every time a show is shown, is viewed... Mm -hmm. There has to be a stat that equals some kind of price, Mm -hmm. whether it be like before, like on cable, it's like it was shown, right? No matter who watched or not, if it was shown, they got paid, right? Right? Here, it's like, well, Netflix can tote out like, oh, we have X amount of minutes, then well, do the writers get one cent for every minute that was shown? Or is it something where it has to be a complete showing or at least like 10% of it's shown and then the writers get some kind of amount, right? Mm-hmm. But whatever figure that they figure out, that means the streaming service have to finally release data. That data can now be extrapolated to actual numbers in a way, Yeah. right? I've been reading up on this and part of it is that they're actually trying to agree on a third party to determine those residuals, right? A trusted third party so that Netflix and streaming services still don't actually have to release the data. This person just says, we've looked at the data, this is how much the writers get.
0: Yeah, and then the numbers won't be public.
2: Won't be public still. Yeah. And I think that's, like, one of the fighting points by the streaming service, because they really do not want
0: to release these numbers to the public. I mean, that's a reasonable request by Mm -hmm. the guilds, right? Like, that's a compromise where the third party... Recognizes these numbers and then comes up with the correct residuals. But Mm -hmm. then the streaming services just don't want to release the numbers at all. So that makes me think that there's something real fishy going on and all of these numbers have been faked for years and years and years, right? The streaming model is already on shaky ground. If these numbers get released, the entire system is going to collapse.
1: Mm, I don't know. I mean, it could be, right? What these streaming services are doing now is they're all hiking their prices now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In order to kind of try and catch up because they've been losing money hand over fist because like, production costs have been so high. Revenue has been okay, but like the costs have just been crazy. So they're trying now that they've got people on the hook to increase prices because like the previous pricing was not enough to actually cover costs. So the fact that streaming is, like as a whole not profitable and not really working out, it's a bad sign overall for the industry, right?
0: Yeah. You do make a good point. Like, these costs have become astronomical. Especially for stuff on, like, Disney Plus. Like, Secret Invasion, which no one fucking watched, cost $300 million to make, which is, like, the cost of a blockbuster. Yeah. And even then, you have you know, theatrical supporting it, where people go out and buy tickets to the theater to make money for the studio, this is just on streaming. They're not making a dime off of it other than, like, the subscribers, right? So, you know, that money is just evaporating, and they're spending so much of it on these shows. I mean, we talked about this, but Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, Mm -hmm, for the number of people who watch that, that thing cost a billion dollars. Maybe across two seasons, but still, it's wild. Yeah. I think this whole industry is in for a reckoning, so I don't know what's going to happen. And it's these writers and actors, the art relies upon them. And they just want to be paid fairly. They just want to make a living. And these executives are making money hand over fist. Like, have you seen some of this executive compensation? It's Insane.
1: It's all eight or nine figures, right? They're all making, you know, $30 million a year, $50 million a year, $100 million a year, mm-hmm. right? I mean, crazy numbers. And they don't actually produce the art, right? Like, it's actually the writers and actors who actually produce the stuff.
0: Yeah. So, Bob Iger, who said the guild demands are unrealistic, he makes $25 million a year. And then David Zaslav makes $40 million a year. Ted Sarandos of Netflix, he makes $50 million a year. Brian Roberts, who's the Comcast executive, makes $32 million a year. Tim Cook makes $100 million a year. You know, all these people, if they just give up a small percentage of their salary, they could fund all of the Guild demands, no
1: problem. Tim Cook is not... He's not like a streaming company executive, right?
0: No, but I mean... He does oversee Apple TV. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But I'm just saying that, like, other things do go into being the Apple CEO, right? Like, that one's just, like, not exactly the same as the others. But, yeah, I mean, the overall point, uh, I completely agree. Like, these guys, they make a ton of money. They shouldn't be trying to destroy the people who actually make the art and replace them with AI. Can we go on and talk about
2: that? Yeah, let's definitely move on. I mean, this is another big
1: contentious point, right, AI? So I understood what for the writers that the studios wanted to have in the contract that extras or people who came on just for, like, one appearance would have to sign away the rights to their appearance, and they could be, like, digitally, I don't know, scanned and made into, like, an AI simulacra of themselves, which could then be employed in perpetuity by the company without ever actually hiring the actor again. Yes. Is this is actually confirmed. Yeah. Obviously it makes sense why the studio wanted that, but why would anyone ever sign a contract like that? Like that's insane. They just they never have to hire you again and they just use like a digital copy of you forever instead of ever hiring you
0: again? That's wild. Well, Disney's already been doing it without their consent. Like the extras. They come in for like a little scan, they don't know what it's for. They're like, okay, I guess I'm getting paid for being an extra Today, I don't know what the scan is for, and then they have their likeness, so they can insert them whenever or wherever they want. Really? Yeah. It's wild. It's like stock photos, right? Taking pictures of someone, and then you
2: could use them wherever you want them, right? You just pay them once, and then you get to use their image as many times as you want, which is But terrible. even the
0: models get paid on stock photos. You know what I mean? <laughs>
2: but not for every not use, Not for every right? use,
0: but it's baked yeah. into... I don't know, I guess their fee, because they know it's going to be used, right? So, when they sell them to the stock photo companies, I'm sure that's part of their contract. And I guess that's what, you know, these people are fighting for. I guess if you're
2: looking for a compromise on this somehow, I mean, I guess I could see them writing in the contract for whatever movie they're doing, maybe. They're allowed to use them throughout the movie. Then that's the stipulation where it ends, right? Like, they can't just use them in everything you know moving forward it's like a case by case basis i guess maybe that's a fair compromise i'm not too sure honestly but that just still it sounds a little sick
0: i don't think ai should be the part of any type of art whether it's the writing or yeah you know the portrayal from actors ai itself is anti-art so i am totally against the use of ai in writing and filmmaking too so i don't Mm -hmm. know
1: What about as an aid to artists, though, right? Yes. Like, what if the artist himself is, like, using the AI to generate a bunch of things to brainstorm? I don't know, whatever. I'm not an artist, I don't know.
0: So, perfect example of this is using AI behind the scenes of Across the Spider-Verse, where they used AI to automate a lot of the more tedious line work that the digital artists have to do. I think that is a perfectly reasonable application of AI, where it's just taking the tediousness of the job away, just making that better, you know? And easier for the workers and artists to do their jobs. I think that's different. I don't know if you guys agree.
2: I don't see the problem in, let's say, like you have a stadium and you need to fill it with people, right? Taking a person's image saying like, hey, I'm only going to use this for this purpose. You know, I'm not going to use your voice. You know, I'm not going to make you act in this movie, but hey, I need to fill a stadium. So can I scan you, use your likeness? AI will populate you randomly throughout the stadium, maybe change the color of your clothes, maybe change what you're doing, but then that's it, right? And that's where it gets cut off. I don't see a problem with that, per se. That's where I would maybe like draw yeah, the line. Yeah, I
0: mean, I agree. I think, you know, stuff like AI script writing is dog shit. I don't want to see any of that. And, you know... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Marvel using AI to make the Secret Invasion opening credits, that sucks ass, too. I don't want to see that either.
1: Okay, but do you hate it because it's bad or because it's inherently anti-art, right? Like, what if in five years the AI actually turns out stuff that's pretty good? I still don't like it. Yeah, so there's something inherently anti-art in yeah. AI being used to make art. There's a line where there's not, like, a human behind the art. And the art isn't, like, an expression of what a human being is Exactly.
0: To I think, you know, if you think about opening credits, some of that's, like, the most creative stuff behind a show. Think of stuff like Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. Or, like, Lost. Or some of the Marvel stuff that we've been seeing. Star Wars. Its genesis is like from a font of creativity from real human people. And then to do that and instead going behind a keyboard and be like, Samuel L. Jackson's scroll face melding with green alien planet. And then you (laughs) type enter and it generates this thing. That's not the same. And it is genuinely anti-art, I think. Mm -hmm. It's not the same. I definitely
2: don't agree with being able to capture somebody's likeness and voice and mannerisms to like try to recreate them like i don't need to see an elvis presley movie without like austin butler right you know what i mean like uh that's where the art comes from right his
0: portrayal of that character like i don't need to see a fake Elvis. that stuff sucks even when you're not using ai right like the stuff in the flash movie where they're resurrecting dead actors it's along the same lines i think it's just ghoulish Mm -hmm. and nasty and And
1: super disrespectful and
0: gross yeah i think it's just completely different when an actor pours his heart and soul into evoking that person even if they don't look that much like the real person you know like austin butler but his performance is so good and there's an artfulness to that where you know resurrecting christopher reeves in a fucking flash movie is just ghoulish and nasty you know what i mean but Mm -hmm. switching gears a little bit So I want to talk a little bit about the line between influencers and critics, especially because, you know, that line is being blurred all the time. And especially when it comes to the writer's strike, right? Because a lot of influencers are coming out and be like, where does it stand where I talk about movies and I make content for my YouTube channel talking about movies? Can I still do that? Am I a scab if I (laughs) talk about the latest release? And... I think that's the problem. I think that the line has blurred so much when it really shouldn't be. For me, or for us as you know reviewers and critics, there's no question that we can still talk about these things because we're not doing promotion for these movies, right? We're not doing promotion for these TV shows or movies that we're talking about. But for a lot of these influencers and film YouTubers or whatever, that line has become so blurred between you know, criticism and promotion that they don't know what to do. I think that's super interesting. And, you know, I never had a question that we could still be doing this. But, you know, a lot of people, they get invited to the premieres and the studios are like, well, if you have a positive reaction, you can come out and talk about the movie. If you have a negative one, you're not allowed to say anything. And these YouTubers and tiktokers they just follow that guideline you know what i mean where do we draw the line between influencer and critic right which i think is
1: really interesting so at the point at which you become an influencer you're sort of employed by the studio you're sort of scabbing if you continue your job whereas if you've maintained a sharp line between being a critic and being an influencer then critics can kind of continue to do their work right you're just reviewing things that have already come out yeah
2: I feel like what you're saying is that the line is drawn between, like, promotion and critique. Because what, one of the things that has come out from this writers and actor strike is that actors and writers cannot promote their work. I guess, luckily enough, for movies like Barbie and Oppenheimer, they had a little bit of a promotional period, right? The, one of the big stories is that they didn't show up for their – I think it was Barbie, right? They didn't show up for one of their premieres. Well,
0: Oppenheimer was in the middle of its world premiere –
2: Oh, yes. I think it was All, all the actors were on
0: stage when, at the exact time the strike started, and they all just dropped their mics and left the stage, which is what happened. So, mm-hmm. they're not allowed to promote struck work. Yes. But that's also why, you know, the things that
2: we've seen, if you watch on, like, YouTube, there's still a lot of promotional videos for, like, Barbie and Oppenheimer because a lot of those things were filmed. Before. Yes. Earlier. Before. You know, movies that are coming out now, like, a big release coming next week is Blue Beetle. And I feel like Zolo Maradueno is like walking this fine line of trying not to promote Mm. his, because he can't. But also, I know he feels like he has to because the trades have been reporting that the movie is probably not going to do so well, not do so hot. That's what these actors are meant to do. Part of their job, I guess, is go out and promote their movies to hopefully boost some of those sales. So, And then going back to your point earlier, like influencer versus a critic. A critic isn't paid to promote a movie. A critic is paid or not paid (laughs) to provide their opinion, right? Whether it be good or bad. It sounds like these influencers are feeling a little bit maybe one way or the other because it's almost like, hey, they've been invited to these things and it feels like they've been invited for the purpose of promoting, right? Like they're not really supposed to say bad things. They're only really supposed to kind of hype up the movie. So, I can see why they feel like they have to draw this line because If anything, they're more promoters than anything. That line
0: is getting grayer and grayer. So maybe you're not being paid by the studio to promote the movie. But when you go to the world premiere, when you're invited and you get your expenses paid and you get a swag bag and you get to walk the red carpet and interview the stars and like you're live live streaming streaming it. it. They want you to hype up the movie and, you know, you're following their embargo guidelines of "oh, I'll only hype up the movie if you have a positive opinion you know that's when i feel like that line is getting shaky you know what i mean <laughs> yeah
1: that's so just building to a slightly different point uh, you know actors not being able to promote their work and so on what is the damage that these ongoing strikes are gonna do to the industry
2: For the foreseeable future, I mean, we have a lot of movies that are already either delayed. You know, there's a lot of movies that have had to stop production. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most famously, like I think the big one right now is Deadpool 3 was right in smack in the middle of production. They had to stop. So, those movies are going to get delayed. I believe Sony announced a bunch of delays that they're pushing out till next summer or further now. We've already seen movies that were supposed to come out this year – that were supposed to be kind of like awards contenders that are getting pushed, right? Uh, I know the big one was uh, Luca Guadagnino's *Challengers*. Challengers. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to come out in September, and I was like really excited to watch it. And now it's getting pushed till next year.
1: The most poor things, I think, got pushed too. Mm-hmm.
2: And this is kind of what happened in 2007, right? You know, the probably the biggest effect on movies was that just movies got delayed. They got pushed, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's not like movies got canceled because of it, but it just got delayed, right? A long period of time where we didn't have new movies and. Uh, like you said, seasons were shortened. people couldn't write or act. It also pushed out the next season of TV. I'm guessing that's probably going to happen too. Like, you know, I believe the last strike in 2007, just for the writers, was really only three months. Mm-hmm. I think it was from like November to February. We're about to, what, cross that three-month mark, aren't yeah. we? Oh, no, we already did. Yeah, we already did. Yeah, we already did. So, like, this has already gone on further
0: than The Last Strike. For the WGA, at least, for the writers, right? Yes, for the writers.
2: There are some people saying, like, they're not close at all. Actors saying they're ready to strike until 2024. That's, like, another four months away. So it's just going
0: to delay things even more and more and more and more. Yeah, and contrary to what some people are saying, you cannot film without writers. Mm -hmm. You can have a script completed and... You can start filming technically without writers, but it is a very difficult thing to film without a script supervisor on set. And there's definitely a lot of writing that goes on in between shooting days. You need mm-hmm. those writers on set while filming. So a lot of productions are being like, oh, we can film without writers. And well, good luck to you guys. I don't know if well, now you guys no can actually do that. Well, now there's actors
1: anyway, right? It's a moot point. Now it's now.
0: Moot. Before SAG-AFTRA went on strike, you know what I mean? Yeah. This is a case for something like House of the Dragon, where most of the principal actors are not SAG-AFTRA, and they are continuing yeah. to film without writers. A lot of the writers are part of the WGA, so I don't know. It's interesting.
1: How much of Hollywood acting pool is part of SAG-AFTRA?
0: So the SAG-AFTRA has 160,000 members. Wow, this is a crazy stat. Only around 2% of SAG-AFTRA members make their entire living through acting.
2: I think bringing up this idea of the ramifications of this strike, you know, both these concurrent strikes kind of reminds me of what also happened in 2007, right? Uh, Because of the writer's strike, because there was, you know, writer's rooms that were shut down and not able to write scripted TV. And then also, you know, seasons being shortened, seasons being delayed. It led to a lot of people like to think that it led to like a rise of reality TV. I don't know if it necessarily led to a rise of reality TV, but it definitely cemented reality TV's place in the sense of, I think, the big three, you know, and I'm thinking like "Survivor," "Big Brother" mm-hmm. and "The Amazing Race," right? Those were cheap productions that did not require writers because of reality t- mm-hmm. shows. And they were able to push those out really fast, right? And we saw the rise of those shows and those are still popular to this day. Mm -hmm. And I am kind of curious if – I don't think we'll see that again just because I think reality TV is just part of our landscape and it just gets shot out left and right. You know, even without the strike, something like Love is Blind has become this huge hit over the last couple of years, right? and those might benefit from this strike even more now but you guys bringing up the point of something like house of dragons being the actors still able to act because they're not part of SAG-AFTRA i'm wondering if the streaming services are going to start leaning on a lot more of their international properties right i've already seen it with netflix you know like based on the things i view it's always shooting me like korean dramas it's always shooting me like foreign movies and all that kind of stuff and Big streaming services like a Netflix do have that back catalog where even if they don't have things made with sag after actors and or the WGA, they still have plenty of things that they could promote and fill in the time with at this moment.
0: So that brings up an interesting point because I think we can talk a little bit about, you know, what actually consists of crossing the picket line and what's actually considered scabbing. You know what I mean? Because I mm-hmm. think technically there are actors who are not part of SAG-AFTRA and you could use those actors to film. But a lot of actors and writers who are not technically part of the strike, they are, you know, showing solidarity by not crossing the picket line. And I think people who do, even though they're not part of the union, it's definitely frowned upon, right? Right crossing that picket line. Something like, I don't know if you guys remember The Haunted Mansion last month? The director, Justin Simeon, went to Disney World to promote the movie. So he's not part of the WGA or SAG-AFTRA, but he did the red carpet, and people were calling him out, even though he's not part of the union, and he's part of the DGA, which is the Director's Guild. So Mm -hmm. he was technically allowed to promote the movie but it kind of left a bad taste in people's mouths when the movie's writers and actors were striking when he should have shown a little solidarity you know what i mean so like what actually counts as scabbing or crossing the picket line and like what goes against the spirit of the strike you know what i mean i think that's like an interesting thing yeah so one of the examples is viola davis She got an exemption for one of her movies to film and act, but she still chose not to just out of solidarity with the actors and writers who are striking and there's a lot of interesting gray areas, right? Like it's funny that a lot of smaller studios are able to film and have writers, right? Like A24, they're continuing to produce and shoot their movies. Because they got exemptions from both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA to continue working because they met their demands. You know what I mean? They were able to come to the table and give the unions what they wanted, or at least compromise. It's interesting that, you know, the big companies aren't willing to even come to the table. Like, they've negotiated several times, and then it's rejection after rejection after rejection for a lot of these demands, which is kind of crazy
2: yeah it it really is i'm curious jeff because i'm a little unfamiliar with this but then you mentioned earlier the taping audition tapes yeah okay so
0: this is super interesting so one of the big lightning rods for the SAC after strike is that actors want more regulations on self-audition tapes so Self audition tapes, if you don't know, it's instead of going into the studio to audition, they submit a tape of their performance. And basically it's good for everyone, right? You don't have to travel. You don't have to go to the studio. The studio can get way more submissions and then, you know, the actors can film their auditions in the comfort of their own home. Right. But the thing is that there's little to no regulations on the audition tapes. So a lot of it is becoming a lot more cost-prohibitive, where actors who have money, they're using professional lighting, they're using acting coaches during the taping, and they're just spending money on, like, an actual film instead of an audition tape to send in. And then, you know, more of the struggling actors aren't able to do this, so they want to put in, like, regulations to control how much you can spend on the audition tape and, like, you know, the timeline for submission and things like that. It's really interesting actually. It's something I've never even thought about because sometimes the studios even request, like, oh, have different camera angles in your audition tapes. And you know, not everyone can afford to like have a professional production when it comes to their audition tapes. And that's been like a big sticking point for the SAG After Strike. Something I had no idea about.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of do you guys hear about this story? And came out probably a couple months ago. About the directors that like pitch a new Final Destination. Yes, movie. I heard about this. Yeah. No. They pitched it. It was like a Zoom yeah, yeah, pitch. Yeah. At one point, they switched it to a video. It's like a video of the ceiling fan falling down and like cutting off one of their heads. It kind of seamlessly switched to this final destination like video where it kills the directors off. I remember when that came out, people were like, Oh, that's so creative. That's so cool. That's how you know these guys really want this job and like they're perfect for it. But then now you're seeing the flip side where maybe like that's not the best thing, right? Because like someone who doesn't have that money Yeah. Can't allow like a director or like a casting. That's such a good example. I mean
0: even though this is like, you know, the directors and not the actors, but you know, like people who don't have the means to film themselves getting killed on screen for an yeah. audition tape yeah. you know that's very funny
2: that is super fascinating again like you i didn't think about it like that I, I didn't think that i guess someone could technically have a pretty big upper hand if they're coached if they have vfx i didn't even realize people put yeah. i guess until this whole final Absolutely. destination thing people put like vfx in their audition tape so yeah i guess that definitely could play a factor yeah. right yeah
1: there's a lot of like interesting industry specific sort of demands that I never would have known about it until I started looking into it. Yeah. Right? Like, the other one, not for the actor's guild, but for the writer's guild, is the minimum number of writers in the writer's room. Do you guys read about this?
0: Yeah, they want to expand the writer's rooms to have more writers.
1: That's sort of interesting to me, right? I mean, I guess it sets a baseline minimum number of jobs, mm-hmm. which I guess is a good thing. But then there's, like there are shows where previously they were just written by one person. This right. This sort of semi autor sort of thing and now it's like you're now like mandated to have a certain number of people on. I don't know. That one seems a little funny to me. It just seems like now you're interfering with the art maybe? hmm
2: I can see that. Yeah. I wonder if it's something you could like declare like I'm going to be a solo writer, you know, a sole proprietor or I'm going to be part of this writer's room, where then if once you say, oh, I'm going to create a writer's room, then it has to meet a minimum, right? Like, I
0: could see something like that happening. Yeah. Also, I think we might be viewing, you know, oh, the union is art and then the corporation is anti-art, which isn't exactly true, you know, because the Mm -hmm. WGA and the SAGAF. the final goal of the unions is to look out for the job security of its members, right? So I think... Putting in the minimum number of people in the writer's room is more about keeping the union members employed rather than supporting the art yeah. of whatever auteur like Steven Soderbergh is <laughs> uh, looking to do with a single writer and director and, you know.
1: Yeah, Exactly
0: yeah selfishly like I think I would want to keep
2: it where you still can make that distinction like you still have that distinction where if like someone wants to work by themselves they should be allowed to Mm -hmm. right I don't know but there's always
0: exemptions right like you can always get the union to exempt you from one of the stipulations or whatever it happens all the time Mm. you know yeah that's true
2: like if yeah Nolan says I don't want to write in his room they're going to (laughs) give Nolan they're going to be like no okay yeah Nolan could just write it (laughs) by himself you know what I mean Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything else you guys want to bring up? (laughs)
0: Stephen Amell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to single some dude out for being a fucking anti-union or whatever, but the Stephen Amell (laughs) thing is just so funny. He came out as like, oh, the whole strike is stupid and you're just holding everything up. Even though he's, like, part of the guild and he's like, well, I don't support the strike. And he's, like, one of the 1% of the guild that didn't support the strike. And It's so funny because he got blasted on social media. So if you don't know, Stephen Amell, he played Oliver Queen on Arrow on the CW. So he came out and he was like, I don't support the strike. And everyone got so fucking mad at him. People were posting memes of like Grant Gustin in front of Oliver Queen's grave with a peace sign or whatever. (laughs) And then, you know, last week he showed up on the picket line holding, you know, the sign for the strike And his face was just so funny. It just looked like my PR guy called me and gave me a piece of his mind or whatever, so now I gotta be here and Mm. apologize and do this apology tour or whatever. He did not look like he wanted to be there at all, which was so fucking funny.
2: Yeah, and it's really funny because I remember seeing that those tweets, you know, the rest of the Arrowverse cast was like yeah, all together yeah. in like, LA doing he's not it. There. And they're all like supporting each other. And he's like all by himself, like New York just by himself. It's just like, it's pretty yeah. funny. <laughs> but yes, this is not one of those situations where like he was misquoted, no. right? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think we spoke in our piece. I mean, I think. I probably would could speak for all of us and, and say that you know we are definitely in support of the, the writers and the actors. And as creatives, they deserve everything that they're asking for. I made light last week. We're going to run out of things to talk about, but that's fine. This is people's livelihoods. You know, I have friends that are actors. I have friends that are writers. It sucks. It's hard. You know what I mean? So I just can't even imagine going through something like this, knowing that you have to put your life on hold yeah some corporations saying that they'll wait you out until like you lose in, your in, home you know yeah lose your home run you dry like that's just terrible yeah. you know what
0: i mean so definitely solidarity with the writers and the actors like derek said they're putting their lives on hold to make a point and to fight for equal pay and for better treatment from the studios and it's not an easy thing to do so we hope we can get to a a resolution and a compromise that works for them.
2: But yeah, I guess that will conclude this week's episode. Uh Jeff, where can people find more of your work?
0: You can find me on my blog at strangeharbors.com and you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at strangeharbors. What about
1: you guys? You'd find me spiritually on the picket line supporting the actors and the writers out there. <laughs> what about you, Derek? Uh
2: you can find me at the world's ok photos on Instagram. If you like this podcast, the easiest way to support our show is to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of the other popular apps. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do us a favor and give us a great rating. It really helps to get our voices out to more people.
0: Yeah, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions on our episode on the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes, feel free to shoot us an email at Jeff at StrangeHarbors.com. We like getting listener mail. Sometimes we read it on the pod. And for that, we will see you guys next week.
1: See you next week, everybody.
0: See you guys then.